Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You got to take politics and regulation seriously. If you don't, it is, can be just as fatal as having bad engineering or UX or bad marketing uh, or anything else. Oh, the world has changed this way, and now I've got everything I do has to be like Zoom in some way. Uh, in fact, arguably, that's the last thing you should be focused on because Zoom's already happened. Hello, I'm Linda Yu, an economist and broadcaster. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared Business Podcast. I'm joined by the venture capitalist and tech investor, Bradley Tusk. He's also a political strategist, philanthropist, and writer. He is the CEO and co-founder of Tusk Ventures, the world's first venture capital fund that invests solely in early stage startups in highly regulated industries, among his many other roles. So we'll be discussing tech startups and investing during the pandemic. And with headlines about regulating big tech companies in the news, we'll also discuss how much to regulate tech companies. Welcome, Bradley. Um, Thanks so much for having me. Brilliant to to have you join us um, for this Intelligence Squared Business Podcast. I should also mention you are the author of The Fixer, My Adventures, Saving Startups from Death by Politics. So we should start with that. I I was told by the producers of my podcast to mention Firewall, our podcast, as much as possible. So uh, also the host of a a podcast about tech and politics called Firewall. So if you find this interesting, you might find that interesting too. So tell me, um, and I think your book title um, gives that hint, um, about how you started as a tech investor about a decade ago. So you were in politics then, and then Uber came along. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I was, I'd spent a a pretty much a career in politics. I had been uh, Mike Bloomberg's campaign manager when he ran for mayor of New York. I had been Chuck Schumer's communications director uh, in the Senate. I had been the deputy governor of Illinois. So all these different jobs and started a, my first business, which is a consulting firm that runs big campaigns for companies in 2010. And then about a year later, I get a call from a friend saying, Hey, there's a guy with a small transportation startup. He's having some regulatory problems. Would you mind talking to him? Would you mind talk? And, uh, I become Uber's first political advisor that day. I get really lucky when Travis Kalanick, who was then the CEO and is the founder of Uber, called me back and said, listen, I can't afford your fees. Would you take equity? At the time, I didn't know what equity meant. But for some reason, I said yes. Uh, That was during the Series A of Uber. Um, So that obviously worked out really, really well. And, And what we did for the next couple of years 
was fight the tax. And obviously London has had more than its share of these fights too, but in the US, take on the taxi industry to legalize ride sharing. Um, and in the unlike in the UK where it's kind of gone back and forth, in the US, we won in every single jurisdiction across the country. And the thing that we did and figured out, which is really why we won, was that we turned our customers into political advocates. So um, the same people who normally are never voting in, in most elections and are pretty disengaged, we were able to say to them, look, if you like this thing, and if you remember the first time you used Uber, it was the first couple of times, it's a pretty magical experience, right? Then you get used to it and then annoyed by it. But like early on, you're like, oh my God, I can just press this button and this nice car shows up. Um, so we said to listen, if you want to keep using this, we need your help press this button and you can tweet at your, the relevant city councilman, email the relevant state assembly member, you know, call the mayor, whatever it is. And over a period of a couple of years, a couple of million people did just that. Uh, and that's how we won. So that, that was kind of my initial introduction to tech. Um, and then there's a company in the U S called clear, which is biometric uh, screenings at the airports. I don't know if it's also in Heathrow or not, but, um, and, um, same deal. They gave me equity and I helped get them into airports around the U.S. And, and both companies did really well. And it started to hit me like, hey, this seems pretty lucrative and it's fun. And I met a guy named Jordan Knopf, who at the time was running Blackstone's uh, internal venture fund. And I said, look, do you think this could be an actual business? And his view was that really differentiated venture capital funds are the ones that succeed. And there was no one doing kind of the intersection of, of regulation and tech and politics. And so we started our, our business uh, in 2016 and uh, raising the first fund was really hard. Uh, anyone who on this, uh, listen to this podcast um, has a fund knows that LPs say, oh, I want something really different. Um, but at least the first time around when me, this political guy walked in the room, everyone looked at me like I had three heads, like that, not that different, that's crazy. Um, but luckily we eventually managed to raise about $37 million for our first fund um, deployed into 18 different startups that went well, uh, did it again in 2019 with fund two at 70 million, uh, we're now most of the way done, uh, with fund three raising 150 million. And we specifically invest in, um, seed and series A companies where, um, they have some sort of meaningful regulatory risk. So most investors kind of run away from that. We run towards it. Indeed quite a few people would actually avoid regulated industries, but you seem to run towards them. So just describe your approach. Yeah. So, I mean, like any early stage tech investor, we ask ourselves all the same questions that, that they do too. So what's the founder like? How big is the market? What's the underlying tech like? How big is the idea? Um, but then we ask ourselves two questions that I think probably no one else does. And the, the first is, is there some sort of gating regulatory issue or opportunity that if we solved it could meaningfully drive growth and valuation? And if the answer to that is yes, then the next question is, can we solve it? And when the answer to both questions is yes, that's when we invest. So for example, uh, FanDuel, which is a, a US company, but recently acquired by Flutter, which is on the London Stock Exchange. Um, we ran, we invested in FanDuel, then we ran campaigns in states all over the US to legalize daily fantasy sports. Uh, there's an insurance startup called Lemonade that recently went public. We invested in Lemonade. Then we ran all of the campaigns to get them their insurance licenses in every state in the US. Um, Bird, the scooter company, invested in Bird really early. 
then ran campaigns all over the country to legalize electric scooters. So, so that's kind of when we deploy capital. So you actually do more than just invest. You actually lead these campaigns. You yeah. actually work with the companies to do that. So just say a bit more about that. It's very yeah, unusual, we, I have to we say. Do. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's not inexpensive because obviously I have a lot bigger team than a fund just doing investing does. But um, yeah, I mean, what we say to these companies is look, we really believe you could succeed, but for this problem that you're going to have to solve. And we think it's solvable. By the way, sometimes I look at a deal and I say, this might be a great business, but I can't solve their political problem, in which case we don't invest, right? But if we believe we can, and usually we think we can, um, we think it's solvable and we're willing to put in the work to do it for you. Um, and as a result of that, you know, we pretty much always win an allocation into a deal or the ability to lead the deal if we want to, because we're just offering the founder something totally different than anyone else is able to provide them with. And so it's a different model of venture. Um, now that we're raising fund three and our, our fund one net returns are around IRs around 50%, all of a sudden everyone always knew it was going to work and it was a great idea. Uh, but it, it definitely took a few years um, of really not just proving the, the thesis, but actually kind of building the market for it, right? I've spent so much time in public um, trying to make people aware that our fund exists and this new type of venture capital exists. That's why I have my own podcast. That's why I write a column for Fast Company, why I wrote the book that you mentioned and do so many other public things is if I didn't do those, I don't think we would exist. So which you said there are opportunities businesses or you think you can't solve the regulatory problem. So do you have some examples? Yeah. So, so the, those, I would say it's, it's one of a few categories. So one would be if the solution relies heavily on Washington, DC. So no one listening to this podcast will be surprised uh, to learn that I think our government, federal government is a total mess. Um, the phrase an act of Congress is literally now synonymous with a miracle right? And when that's the case, I don't like my odds in running a campaign where I need a miracle in order to win, right? So oftentimes, if it requires an act of Congress specifically, I'll bow out. Now, sometimes I need something uh, administrative from one of the federal agencies. That will take on usually because we can get that done. So that's, that's number one. Number two, there are certain sectors that I just don't, don't like. So like education tech is, is a good example where in the, I don't know how, how it is in the UK, but in the US, there are 15,000 different K through 12 school districts. So 15,000 different administrators, entities, policies, bureaucracy, politics, all of that. And to have a successful ed tech company, typically you have to be able to sell into these, uh, to these districts. And to me, relying on uh, procurement from you know, all these different school districts, where in my experience, the smallest one is just as political and just as bureaucratic as the biggest one to me is, is just a bad business model. Uh, so there are times where I like the model and there are times where like my team, because the, the political side of our team obviously gets the, the regulation pretty well, but the investment team isn't there to do politics. They're there to find and, and negotiate and diligence deals. And sometimes they really kind of miss the point politically. I remember one time a guy, Yoni from our team came to me and said, there's this great kind of gambling startup. It's like the lottery but it's private and they don't go through the government at all. I'm like, 
you know, that's called the numbers. It's been illegal for like a hundred years. Like I can't legalize that, right? And so it's like, oh, like, yeah, I, I agree with you. That would be a good business if you could do that. Um, but we would go to jail. Um, so there are times where, where it trips into that too. And just, um, I want to move on to talk about some of the kind of the big issues around tech, but just um, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs who are thinking about, oh, I could really do a great business here, but they're just worried about regulation. Yeah. So the, the first thing, and I have a whole book about this, if people are really curious, but the, the, the first thing is you got to take politics and regulation seriously. If you don't, um, it is, can be just as fatal as having bad engineering or UX or bad marketing uh, or anything else, right? Um, regulation can sink a startup very, very quickly. It doesn't mean that it will, but A, you've got to take it seriously. And B, you need a plan, right? And the plan doesn't necessarily have to mean that you're going to go to war with every politician in the world. Sometimes that's the right strategy for a particular startup in a particular situation. Usually it's not. Um, but you need a basic sense of, okay, here's what the process is for me to achieve this thing, to pass this law, to get this permit, to achieve this regulation, and here's how I'm going to go about doing it. Um, and if you can do that in a logical way, then there's no reason you shouldn't move forward. Um, but just kind of ignoring it and sticking your head in the sand and hoping it works out, 99.9% um, .9 of the time it does not. That's a great tip. Thanks very much, Bradley. Okay, so I want to talk about, um, it's just all over the news now, both sides of the Atlantic. Um, there's a lot of regulatory scrutiny of tech, specifically big tech. Yeah. Um, a lot of this centers on anti-competitive practices, as well as um, regulators wanting tech companies to take more responsibility for, you know, say, legal behavior on their platforms. So the European Commission um, is now threatening large fines and might even break up big tech companies yeah. if they repeatedly engage in such behavior. So what do you think of this? I mean, is this the right approach? I, look, generally, I would say yes. Obviously, on any specific issue, I may not agree with what the EU is doing or the United States, um, but overall, look, I'm an early stage tech investor, which means I want to be able to invest in companies that can one day compete with Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and others. Um, but if they have so much power that's completely anti-competitive and there's no way for anyone to even try to compete with them, that's a perversion of the market. It's a perversion of capitalism and it shouldn't be allowed. And that's why antitrust laws on both sides of the ocean uh, exist. And so generally speaking, I am hoping that we will see some regulations come out of Washington, DC that emulate what you've already done. Well, I guess England is now no longer part of the EU, but at least what the EU has, has already done. So GDPR, for example, um, we don't have that in the US. Uh, California has passed their own code called the CCPA. So that's something, but it's just one out of 50 states. Um, and as a result, I think you've got this real, you have two problems. One is um, very big tech companies being very careless uh, and predatory with people's data. And number two, now a, a big vacuum of trust where people just assume that their data is not safe, that companies are not looking out for them, that government is not looking out for them. Um, and and that, that lack of trust and confidence is really a problem. So um, that will be one area. Another one you mentioned, anti-competitive. So uh, the EU regulators are looking at, you know, potentially trying to break up some of these different companies. Um, same thing over here in the US. So in recent months, 
Um, the federal government has launched investigations, actually prosecutions, into both Google and Facebook. Uh, Google, because they control the search market completely, right? I think it's like they have some like 600 billion pages on their site, and the next closest one is Microsoft at 100 billion or something like that. Um, and Facebook, simply because Zuckerberg has been caught saying, well, if anyone threatens to compete with us, I'll just buy it, right? Um, and so what they're going to look at is, you know, how would you potentially change this or break it up? So with Facebook, you could see Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp become three separate companies. Um, on the Google side, maybe some portion of, of Google gets, gets split off, or maybe certain practices that Google currently has uh, become banned. Um, but I, I do think that these companies have grown so big, so fast, uh, that it's right of regulators uh, across the world to be worried about. I mean, you mentioned their Facebook. Um, I think the regulators were very unhappy with what they described as the, quote, buy or bury approach. And that's where this kind of divestment um, you know, comes from. But the other bit of behavior, I think, is illegal uh, behavior on platforms. So how do you think that should be regulated? Obviously, you're also yeah. in the political sphere. So this is a yeah. big issue in the it's political a sphere. Question. Too. And there was an interesting piece in one of the papers today, maybe it was the Times, maybe it was the Journal, on evolving attitudes by the big social media companies um, around this law that we have in the US called Section 230, which is what currently says that if you are Facebook, Twitter, Snap, whoever, and if you or I go on there and write something truly offensive, they're not legally liable for it. Um, so as a result, the internet has, has become what we see, which is mainly a cesspool, because if everyone can say whatever they want with complete anonymity and no potential punishment of any kind and no consequences, this is what happens. Um, and so in the US at least, there's not bipartisan consensus that the initial statutes that were created to protect the internet and allow it to grow and develop no longer apply. You know, Maybe they were the right thing in the 1990s when they were passed, um, but they no longer are. This is a, a case where Trump and Biden both had the same position on this, Democrats and Republicans both have the same position on this. So I do think that despite my saying earlier that an act of Congress requires a miracle, I do think Washington happen on this issue. Um, and, and I think Facebook and Twitter and others clearly are realizing that it's going to happen and are now trying to get ahead of it where they'd rather shape what it is and use it to their advantage uh, than try to fight it. So it is it's interesting for a couple of reasons. One, obviously, because you know we, we pay close attention to the regulatory stuff out of our fund. The second, I'm in the kind of early-ish stages of incubating a new type of social plus platform around religion. We, we just launched the prototype last week. Um, so how the laws around content and safety and everything else and privacy work um, are really important because we want to A, be compliant, but B, I want to be better than the standards, right? So whatever they are, I want to exceed them and be able to tell our users um, you can feel really safe here. And that might mean that I make less money. And that's okay. I'd rather feel proud of what I'm working on. Um, you mentioned, obviously, you started off working with Uber. Uber is um, in a continuing, uh, is discussion the right word, <laughs> with uh, UK <laughs> cities like London. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, do you think that there are areas in which regulation of companies like Uber are just not right? Yeah, I mean, I think I think almost across the board, saying that there should be 
as an investor, in theory, I should want very little regulation. But when I was in government, I, I was a regulator. So I've kind of seen it from both sides. And, and the answer is usually somewhere in the middle, right? Um, it would be highly unreasonable and, and corrupt to tell the people of London, you have to only use these traditional black taxis and you can't use these new services, whether it's Uber or Lyft or, or whoever, right? Um, and we don't want to make it as convenient for you as possible. Oftentimes, regulators forget who they work for. That they're supposed to be protecting consumers and advancing their interests and not protecting the incumbent players in any particular industry. On the other hand, uh, in the US right now, there's a lot of debate over whether Uber drivers and other people in the sharing economy should be considered employees or independent contractors. And the difference means uh, whether they get access to healthcare benefits, workers' compensation, pension, a lot of different rules governing uh, their work there. Um, and that's an active debate that states across the US are, are having um, right now. And some of those regulations are not unreasonable, right? And so, you know, the reality is, in some cases, pretty much across the world, I think government's positions on ride sharing have been overly protective of the status quo. And quite frankly, if there wasn't a problem with the status quo, Uber wouldn't have a business in the first place, right? The reason why Uber is so successful in some ways is because people in London or Paris or anywhere say, our taxi system is not good enough. I want something better. So clearly the regulators are not doing their job if all they try to do is stop innovation. But at the same time, when Uber or any startup says, like, just let the free market reign and we have a libertarian view and there should be no regulation, um, that's nonsense too, in my view. Does it hurt their business model if they have to have the same, say, for instance, workers and treating their workers as employees? Because it raises the cost base a lot. Yeah. So I, I have a strange view on this one that uh, I'll, I'll try it out there. And if, it's, if it gets too confusing, tell me, which is so yeah, it clearly raises their cost basis. Um, they say 20 percent. I suspect that's probably a bit of an exaggeration. But let's call it at least 10 percent. Um, and look, ride sharing, if we just use that as an example, is already not profitable. Every single transaction generally on the unit economics is a revenue loss for Uber or Lyft or whoever it is. So um, on one hand, you know, raising, if you have to raise your cost by 10 to 20%, you're gonna have to raise your prices by 10 to 20% and customers are going to be sensitive to that, which means volume will decline. Um, and as volume declines, you have fewer drivers on the platform. So it's definitely a problem for them. And that's why they spent, by the way, $200 million on a campaign recently in California to overturn a state law mandating that their drivers be treated as employees. However, my advice to Uber, which has gone ignored, uh, but I, I wrote it in my Fast Company column, was that Uber should actually flip around and go the other way with it and embrace it. And, and here's why. Um, right now, at least for as long as you have both Uber and Lyft competing with each other, um, it's always a race to the bottom. They're always subsidizing drivers and riders. And as a result, neither of them can make money, right? The unit economics underlying ride sharing in the, in the status quo of these two companies competing with each other doesn't really work. Um, let's say Uber said, okay, you know what? You're absolutely right. Every driver, you're now an employee. Then they can say to their drivers, hey, you can't drive for Uber and Lyft. Now you just got to drive for us. Like right now, every driver, at least in the U.S., is on every platform because why wouldn't they be? It's more, more opportunity to make money. But just like my employees can't go work for my competitors, other venture capital funds at the same time, uh, Uber can tell their drivers, hey, you got to choose. Most of them are going to choose Uber simply because it's got more market share, which means more money, right? Um, 
the problem for Lyft then becomes if tens and tens of thousands of drivers in cities across the U.S. are now dropping off the Lyft, Lyft platform because they're Uber employees, um, that means that the wait time to get a Lyft goes way up. As the wait time goes up, all studies show Lyft customers open the Uber app instead and, 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 and they call an Uber. As that leads to fewer business on the Lyft platform, more drivers drop off and join Uber. And I believe ultimately it would put Lyft out of business completely. Um, and then you wouldn't have a problem with uh, subsidizing drivers and riders at Uber Economics if you were the only dominant player in the industry. So um, while the US government would never allow Uber to buy Lyft, um, they can't stop Uber from adopting policies that might make Lyft, you know, unsuccessful. Um, that's what I would have done. Uh, I think the original regime at Uber probably would have done that. I've had conversations with, with Travis about it. Kind of when I thought of this, like I called him, I said, am I crazy or is this not the right path? He's like, I would have totally done that. But uh, the current leadership at Uber is very different. Um, very, very conventional, very, very timid. Uh, and as a result, you know, you just don't see out of the box thinking. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Fascinating story, actually, Bradley, <laughs> in terms of uh, thinking about that issue. So, um, and and just maybe, you know, maybe you'll be heard one day. I think that's always the hope, maybe. isn't it? When you're, <laughs> they hear me at Uber. They just usually hear me being critical and 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 are unhappy about it. But you know, one day. <laughs> okay. Um, so I think you know it's fair to say we're sitting in the middle of a back lash against tech. You know, we yeah. talked about big tech companies, and there's quite a lot of um, I think just dissatisfaction with all the things that we've discussed, you know, in various ways. Um, however, startups have actually raised a lot of money uh, this year, including at IPO, which is when they become publicly listed companies for the first time. In fact, it's been a record year for IPOs. So just tell me why, uh, what accounts for this in a pandemic? Yeah, it's a few things and you're absolutely right. So this year in the last couple of months, um, the first three investments out of out of our first fund all had uh, transactions. So FanDuel was purchased by Flutter, Lemonade went public on the New York Stock Exchange, um, and Care-of, which is a vitamin supplement company, was purchased by Bayer. So we were able to actually become liquid uh, on all of them, which I think if you told me at the beginning of COVID that we're going to have all this liquidity and returns, like I would have never believed that. Um, so here's my sense of how the year went. You know, the first quarter was actually for us quiet in the sense that valuations were so frothy and so high that we actually took our foot off the gas a little bit and said, you know what, if we really love a company, then we don't get too worried about price and we just do it. Um, but unless we find something we really, really love, we're not going to spend money for the sake of spending money. So we actually didn't do, ironically, any deals um, in the first quarter uh, of this year. Then COVID hits and I'm like, oh God, I can't believe I didn't invest. I'm an idiot. Now there's gonna be nothing for the whole year. And there was a period where it was it was slow because you know, up until now, we had never invested in a company and not met the founder in person, right? We had never not had some sort of physical interaction. 
but everyone was completely stuck wherever they were. Uh, in fact, I ended up, we have a, a house in upstate New York and I was there for six months. Um, and so everyone had to get comfortable with the notion of making investments over Zoom, um, fundraising over Zoom, because I've, we've been raising our, our, our new fund. Um, and then this sort of thing happened. And I guess it was like a collective moment where everyone just kind of decided implicitly like, yeah, okay, this is fine. Um, and it wasn't like there was a giant meeting of all the venture capitalists in the world to discuss it, but it just sort of became accepted. And then things just started moving really fast. Um, and we've deployed a lot of capital this year and have had a really busy year. It's mainly happened in the second half of the year. So it's, it's been an insane Q3 and Q4 for us. Um, and valuations are pretty much what they were. You know, we saw a couple of deals at the beginning of COVID where valuations did have a discount because of it. Um, and really now we're, we're bad. I mean, we just invested, you know, we haven't done the finished paperwork yet, so I won't name the company, but in a, a $27 million valuation for a seed round, that's really high. Um, that's often a series A price, right? So um, so prices are, are back to the same crazy numbers that, that they were before, um, which is both good and bad, right? It's good if you're on the right side of the trade. It's, it's bad if you're on the wrong side of it. Um, but overall for what I thought would have been a really disastrous year for venture capital, um, it has not been. There's quite a lot of concern, I think, about um, a bubble, uh, perhaps a tech bubble, yeah. perhaps uh, IPOs and uh, IPOs that didn't go ahead <laughs> yeah. because of, um, you know, these companies just getting a bit of wash in money and uh, maybe haven't turned a profit. Um, so are you worried about a bubble, uh, well, about the sector? Yeah, I, I am. Look, I, I'm not a public market investor at all. Like, I don't really, the only time I ever hold stock is when a company of ours has gone public and I'm not allowed to sell all of it yet. Um, the people that manage my money presumably have some stock investments. I don't even know what they are, right? I have no, no interest in the public markets. So, I'm not a public investor. So on one hand, I'm not that worried about it and I'm not an expert in it. But to me, it, it's a symptom of a larger problem. And it, I think it traces back to the private valuation in the early days that then leads to these issues, which is um, there's been so much money raised by venture capital funds that when you're sitting awash with so much, and obviously SoftBank at 100 billion was, was the big example and Sequoia at 20 billion, but even Series A funds with a couple of hundred million dollars is really big. Um, and you got to deploy the money, right? And in some ways, if you have a $400 million fund focused on Series A investments, instead of writing $4 million checks, you got to start writing $10 million checks because there's not enough time to invest, you know, uh, do 100 deals or whatever it is, or 50. You know, so um, in the investors themselves, had an interest in increasing the value and the price of each round. And the reason they had that is we all collect a 2% management fee every year on the amount of money we have under management. So if you have $400 million in a fund under, under management, every year you're getting 8 million bucks regardless of your performance. If you only have 200 million, even if all you really need to invest is 200 million, you're only getting $4 million. So I think oftentimes venture capitalists were raising funds not based on what they needed to deploy in the market, but what they basically want to take in management fees every single year. Um, that made the funds way too big, which meant they had to invest at inflated valuations. Um, and then every subsequent round, everyone was stuck in the same problem, which was if, if a company was valued at $200 million in their Series B and the growth investor at Series C or D 
you know, it's putting in at 500 million or a billion or whatever it is. So everyone's caught in the same cycle and it goes up, up and up. And then the question is, once you hit the public markets, um, is it sustainable, right? So we've seen in the last week or so, the Uber, I'm sorry, the uh, Airbnb and DoorDash IPOs, which to me seem nuts, right? I'm not an investor in either company, um, nor do I even have, I think, investments in any of their competitors. So, so I don't particularly care one way or the other, but um, there's no way that there was, there was a graph today in, in one of the papers that showed that Airbnb was worth $1 billion less than Marriott, Hilton, and Hyatt combined. Um, that's nuts, right? So clearly, um, those that's a bubble. But other times, if you look at, at we were talking to Uber before, Uber went public and went down, and they had to go public at a much lower valuation than their previous privately valued round, simply because the public market said, I know that you may say you're an $80 billion company, but you don't make any money, right? So in fact, you lose billions of dollars. Um, I'm not going to buy into this. And so um, I do think that there's a bit of a bubble right now. Um, and without overcomplicating this, I think also because of the whole SPAC phenomenon, of which I'm guilty of that too. I, I had a SPAC a few months ago. But because there's been so many companies now taking public via SPAC on top of the IPOs, there's so much activity that I think it's hit a sort of a frenzied pitch. And, and typically speaking, there, there's usually a cliff after that. Hmm. So SPAC, of course, is a special purpose vehicle, raising money kind of in an undetermined way, and then it can be used to invest. So that is um, uh, one one aspect of kind of the interest, as you say, in the sector. So tell me more about this cliff edge. Are we going to fall off this cliff edge? What will that mean? When? (laughs) There's a lot of variables I think are really hard to account for. So, so for example, you know, right now, I, I bet this is true in London. It's totally true in New York. So people in New York yesterday started getting the the vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine for COVID. So on one hand, you're literally seeing images of people with the shot in their arm. On the other hand, the infection rate is the highest it's been here since the very early days of the pandemic. It's really dangerous. And so you've got major shutdowns, but also all of this optimism, and it creates this sort of cognitive dissonance in your mind, which is, well, are things good or bad, Right. And I think that, that applies to the economy in general, which is on one hand, you could argue that at some time by say late Q2, you know, a decent number of the population has been vaccinated and we can start to go out again and spend more money and that will lead to an economic resurgence. On the other hand, it also means at least for the first half of this year, we're still likely to be in, in a version of quarantine. We're in a major recession. Millions and millions and millions of people in the US have lost their jobs. That's true all over the world. Um, here in New York City, you walk down the street, and I was taking my son to school this morning, and I just picked a particular block, just as an example, and three of the four commercial retail storefronts were shuttered. Uh, there was a spa that was closed, there was a coffee shop that was closed, uh, and there was a dry cleaner that had gone business. The, the liquor store was still in business, but everything else had closed. Um, and so that's, you know, a huge problem. So Clearly, if you look at at the markets, it looks like things are great. And then you look at reality and things look pretty bad. Um, And so number one, depending on your view on that, that's really important. Number two would be, you know, I think now we are probably going to have some level of political stability in the U.S. for the first time in four years. Um, Yesterday, uh, our crazy electoral college system affirmed that Joe Biden had actually won the election. I think that's really assuring news 
um, for the markets. Um, but still, it's a very tumultuous time and how Biden handles all of this. Um, in the U.S. right now, there's debate over about a roughly trillion dollar stimulus package to help cities and small businesses and, and people who have you know, lost their jobs and their food benefits. Um, so depending on the direction of that, we may have a bubble burst pretty quickly, um, or maybe government gets its act together for once, and that gives the market confidence, and the vaccine is produced faster than we expect, and the uptake is faster than we expect, because I don't know what it's like in the UK, but in the US, there's not unanimity around taking it either. Um, which is another part, you can have a vaccine, but you can't get the herd immunity unless 75, 80% of the population actually takes it. Um, so depending on the direction that all goes in, um, things could be fine or at some point reality and the markets are so diametrically opposed to each other that some investor notices and said, oh, maybe I should sell. Uh, and that tends to, as we know, spark panics. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, are you going to be that investor, Bradley? <laughs> I don't. Well, again, I'm I'm luckily an early stage private market tech investor, so I don't have to worry about that quite as much. I mean, typically speaking, I'm writing a million dollar check into a seed deal, or call it a three to five million dollar check into a Series A. So the the size of that check could slightly go up or down depending on the economy. But other than that, um, we're relatively stable. Um, but yeah, but, but for people who participate in the public equities, uh, I, I think that there's a lot of uncertainty coming in. Another thing to watch. Um, I want to um, talk a bit about uh, investing during a pandemic. So yeah. obviously, you know, Uber well started and other tech companies. Um, they actually were started during the last recession. Yeah. Do crises offer good um, opportunities and good investment opportunities? I think they certainly offer good opportunities for really creative entrepreneurs to see how society is changing and meet that need, right? So obviously we've seen Zoom and every kind of home productivity app in the world, their, their valuation has, has soared exponentially. And look, the truth is I now run a venture capital fund, a casino management company, a political consulting business, a foundation and a bunch of other stuff on Zoom. So it, it really does work pretty well, all things considered. Um, so you've seen that, but I don't think that it stops there. So let me give you at least an example. So a couple of things that, we're, that I find intriguing right now. So one would be, uh, and I just talked to a, a British company about this uh, a week or two ago, um, delivery drones. So if you think about early in the pandemic, we didn't know how COVID was transmitted, right? And if you remember, you know, everyone was worried about, could you take packages? Did you need to leave them outside for three days? Did you have to wash everything with a certain type of soap? Um, and it was very scary. Turns out that it's not transmitted over surfaces really, so not an issue. But if you had told me in, in the early days of COVID that I could pay a premium uh, and have a drone deliver me stuff that was never touched by a human being or hadn't been touched for a very long time, I would have paid that. And if you told me that I could, could have gotten in an Uber or some kind of car um, and got from point A to point B autonomously and not been exposed to a driver, I would have paid for that. Uh, or trucking. I'm an investor in an autonomous trucking company called Kodiak. Um, if you had told me that the products that I would get could be delivered without there being people inside the truck, I would have paid for that. So now I believe that delivery drones are going to be um, accepted a lot faster uh, because of that. Um, in the US, at least, we're seeing city and state governments being absolutely crippled um, by budget deficits because of COVID, which means 
things that normally they may not politically approve of, I think all of a sudden now, if it can generate tax revenue, will move very quickly. So mobile sports betting or uh, recreational marijuana, you know, anything that can generate new revenue for governments that might normally take a couple of years to get approved, I think is going to move in a couple of months simply because they need the money. So if you look at the pandemic, it's not just the, okay, now we work at home a lot more. What are the tools? But it's how has our behavior shifted in different ways um, that will then either make it more like the government does certain things or regulators, or for example, it, it could even be that you know, when we come out of this pandemic, you know, you've heard people who have been buying Airbnb after the IPO saying, well, I think people, when they start traveling, will feel more comfortable in an Airbnb than in a hotel. Um, okay, maybe so. Or, um, you know, we're investors in a, in a kind of low budget travel company called Landline that provides bus service that connects with, with flights, maybe because people have suffered such an economic hit. Um, they will prefer to spend less money and take more bus trips than, than plane trips. Um, so I, I think you have to look at this in a lot of different ways. And I think the real risk, you get pigeonholed into the, oh, the world has changed this way. And now I've got everything I do has to be like Zoom in some way. Uh, in fact, arguably, that's the last thing you should be focused on because Zoom's already happened, right? And you got to be thinking about um, what if there's a new pandemic? How will people behave coming out of it? What behaviors um, will go back to the way they were and what behaviors are just ingrained? So all the DoorDash investors who are investing at this really incredibly high valuation are saying, I believe that people have gotten so used to food delivery that they will continue to do it at the same rate, even when the pandemic's over. Um, that may be true. It may not, right? If it is true, then yeah, DoorDash might, might make sense. Um, but if people say, oh, you know what, I can go out more now, or I can just go pick it up, or I guess what do you guys say, take away in, in the UK, um, that changes everything, right? So, so we'll see. But, but it's really trying to think about what behaviors are ingrained, what behaviors change, and why. And, and at least for me as an investor, that, that's how I look at it. So if you had to generalize, which sectors do you think are most promising uh, post-pandemic? Yeah. Um, so I, I think... Like I said, uh, anything that uh, generates new online revenue for government, so uh, gambling, sports, esports, um, things like not only marijuana, but in the U.S. now there's a trend on uh, psilocybin, which is like magic mushrooms and things like that. We've started to see approval of those being sold legally as well, again, because it's potentially a significant revenue generator. So I think anything that can generate a lot of revenue, any sector like that, I think certainly is, is something to think about. Anything that I think can get people or goods from point A to point B without human contact um, is something to really think about. So for example, while Tesla to me seems highly, incredibly overvalued, they do make a pretty good autonomous car and arguably that's something that the market needs right now. So, um, so you, you might want to think about that. But again, I'm, uh, I'm totally not recommending anyone buy Tesla necessarily. Um, so I think that sector um, makes a lot of sense. Uh, scooters, right? So we're investors in Bird. Um, there had been a lot of talk of whether the scooter market was, was overvalued, and it may have been. Um, but I think giving people the ability to get from point A to point B without getting on a subway or a, or a bus um, might be very appealing for the next year or two. Um, and so that may be. So to me, th those are all areas that make a lot of sense. Um, yeah, those are ones. And then, and then things like travel, 
it's debatable whether it comes back with a boom or whether it kind of trickles in over time. I mean, even like to marry that to my own family, we were supposed to go to Tokyo last summer for the Olympics. Obviously it didn't happen. We still have the tickets. My wife and I are debating where I'm saying, I think it'll be fine. We should go. My wife's saying like, no, that's crazy. It's, we're not going to be ready for that yet. So, but the outcome of those kinds of internal debates that families are having will really then impact the hotel sector, the airline sector, the rental car sector, the restaurant industry, uh, and so many others. So a lot of these things are still, you know, I think be, being figured out right now. Well, I do hope you make it to the Olympics. It me, is me incredible. Too. I really <laughs> love it. I, I was at the Olympics in, in London in 2012, and I loved it. I thought it was one of the greatest uh, things I've ever, ever done. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It was absolutely amazing. I still think about, I can't believe it's so long ago, but absolutely Incredible experience. Yeah. Okay, so Bradley, let's finish off with um, the Biden administration and sure. how that's going to affect the tech sector. Now, I realize it's probably going to depend on what happens in the Georgia runoffs or the two Senate seats, because that'll determine whether or not uh, the Democrats control both houses of Congress as well as the White House. So tell me, what is tech going to look like under Biden? So I would answer, which is we don't know who's going to these two Georgia seats. I checked the polling, I think, last night. Depending on the poll you look at, it's one to two points in both races in either direction. So, and there's compelling arguments to why voters from either party will or will not turn out um, that I could probably make and sound convincing either way. And the truth is, I have no idea. So, let's assume for the moment that they just split, which means the Republicans do retain control of the Senate. It's probably the safer assumption. That means the Democrats have the House of Representatives and they have the White House and all the apparatus of the federal government. Um, what I think you'll see is administrative action coming out of the Biden uh, world, where, for example, um, maybe they can't pass new privacy regulations through all of Congress, but they could promulgate some of them through the Federal Trade Commission. Um, maybe they can't require that all Uber drivers become employees through an act of Congress, but through the U.S. Department of Labor, they can shift certain rules and regulations to move it in that, in that direction. Um, maybe they can't pass a regulatory framework for autonomous cars or for drones or things like that through Congress, but the Department of Transportation potentially could do that um, on their own. So the first is where there's the opportunity for administrative action. Um, the SEC and cryptocurrency is another really good example there. Um, the second would be are there any areas where there actually is bipartisan support around doing something? So, for example, we talked earlier about Section 230, which is the law right now that protects platforms like Facebook from being sued. Both parties are convinced that Facebook is out to get them. Um, and I'm not sure they're right, but they're utterly convinced of that. And as a result, they both really want to regulate Facebook. So I think that might be an area where you could see um, bipartisan, bipartisan agreement, which could then lead to congressional activity. Um, and, and then maybe there's some others as well. And so um, I think that, that overall, this administration will be tougher on at least big tech than the Trump administration has been. They'll be much more proactive around it. I think you'll see a lot of stuff come through the House of Representatives. Most of it will die in the US Senate, but some of it might not. And overall, I think tech on a federal level um, is going to be in for a rougher four years than we just had. However, and I know now overcomplicating this, but we talked earlier about how city and states in the U.S. 
um, are really being severely hampered by all the budget deficits caused by COVID. Most tech, tech regulation in the U.S. happens on a state municipal level, not a federal level. Um, everyone outside of the U.S. obviously just thinks about Washington, D.C. and kind of assumes that's where all politics happen. It's actually not where not that much tech regulation really happened. And I think on that side, it's going to flip the other way, simply because as we've discussed, they need money so desperately um, that if you can create new tax revenue or create jobs, it's going to be easier to get permits, zoning approvals, ordinances, all kinds of things from cities and states that you weren't able to get over the last few years. So you're going to see this weird dichotomy where tech is going to face a, a harder path uh, from the federal government and I think an easier pass, uh, path from state and municipal government. That's really interesting. Um, okay, just one final question. Um, you come across a huge number of companies that most of us would never come across. Sure. So what do you think is the most exciting transformative um, tech that you've um, seen? That's such a great, such a great question. You know, uh, if, if I think about some of the investments that we've made recently, uh, one in a company called Dash that um, attaches uh, sensors to pallets of air cargo. And then rather than taking off and landing, they throw the cargo out of the plane and it lands at an airfield and the, the sensors guide it to exactly the right landing spot because most of the cost in plane delivery is the fuel used for takeoff and landing. Um, so that's really fascinating. We've got the investor called Get Labs, which is at-home phlebotomy, which means that as this telemedicine uh, sector has really grown a lot during COVID and something that we've invested very heavily in. Um, now, not only just getting treatment uh, by talking to your doctor over text or over video chat, but actually having someone come to your home and take blood, um, I think is sort of a next step uh, in, in healthcare. So, so uh, that's something um, that I'm really excited about. Um, we just invested in a tool called uh, Main Street um, which does helps businesses figure out what tax benefits they're eligible for, gets them and then helps them apply for it and then provides them an advance on the money. And I think that as, as I mentioned in the US, cities and states desperately now need to compete with each other to try to do whatever they can to generate new jobs. They're gonna be throwing incentives at companies. And if you're the hub and repository of all of that, that's a great place to be. Um, so those are a few recent investments that uh, that, that we've made that I'm particularly um, excited about. But, but generally speaking, I guess the one topic that I haven't touched on much in this podcast has been telemedicine. That's probably one trend that I think is going to really continue because people, at least in the US, everyone likes it. It doesn't matter if you're Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, it just makes life easier. So people like it across the board, uh, is a lot more efficient. It saves a lot of money in an industry that's wildly expensive. Obviously, you have the NHS, which makes things prices a lot more controlled than we have here. It's out of control here. Um, so I do think that at least in a country without a single payer system like the U.S., telemedicine is a really exciting sector um, that will continue to grow a lot. So I didn't get a chance to mention that over the past hour or so, but but definitely for people looking at uh, new sectors, that's that's one I would highly highly consider. Thank you very much, Bradley. Tusk for a fascinating discussion about all things tech. I now have a visual in my mind about pilots being thrown out of airplanes. I think yeah, that's what's going it, to it, I, I fell in love with that company as soon as I heard the first pitch on that one. I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, thank you very much for, again, a great discussion. Um, and, um, and uh, you know, I think um, 
I'll certainly be watching to see how these uh, trends uh, turn out. And yeah, and I think you know anyone tuning in um, may just be a little bit less scared of regulation um, after this. So thank I, you for I hope doing so. That. Yeah, and look, <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. And if if you guys are ever trying to figure out what some sort of crazy U.S. political regulatory thing means, shoot me a note, and I'll, I'll at least give you my my analysis of it. That's very kind. Thank you so much. Bradley Tusk, uh, brilliant to speak with you. And thank you all for tuning in to this podcast. For more business podcasts, please go to intelligencesquare.com. I'm Linda Yu.